Hey, Mort. Hey, Elvis. Hey, Einstein. Listen up. It's time for another stellar edition of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Karen Cavallero here to announce show number 54 with guest Carl Prothman. Recorded live Friday, March 5th, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man with more stones than John Ashcroft, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you very much. Thank you, listeners. And welcome to another stellar edition of .NET Rocks. I'm Carl in New London. And uh, as always, let me introduce my uh, partner in crime here, the none other than Mr. Rory Blythe himself. Hey, man. Hey, what's up, Carl? How are you? I'm doing pretty well. You still talking to me? Yeah, I'm still talking to you. I'm in (laughs) in the studio today. I've spent the whole week with you. It's it's been pretty interesting. You know, got into into town and uh, spent three days awake. Two hours of sleep between three days. That was pretty. That was pretty tough. By the time I finally fell asleep, I was out of my mind. But that's cool because I'm feeling better now. Um, for those who don't know, Rory uh, got off the plane. He took a train to New Haven from Providence, Rhode Island. Took a, another train from New Haven, Connecticut, to Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, stumbled into his room. Took a look at the demo machines at Dev Days. Uh, Tried to go to sleep and then woke up in the morning and did a, a .NET uh, presentation for Dev Days. That was my hour of sleep. That was uh, yeah. And and I and I didn't even really fall asleep. I was halfway in a nightmare state the whole night. I was having that dream I've been telling people about, where I saw this half woman, half tree that was slowly crawling around the ground, <laughs> and it was absolutely sinister. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was not pleasant. It might have been the blood curdling screams outside the window that were. You were definitely like listening to port. Oh yeah, yeah. I, c- I couldn't keep a train of thought. I could not do it. Yeah. But it was good, nonetheless. I mean, you pulled it off, and it was a little bleary-eyed, but, you know. Pulled it off-ish. Pulled it off-ish. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, it was good. It was good that you could do it. You actually weren't sure if you were going to be able to make the Hartford Dev Days and right. at the last minute. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it was a little bit crazy for me to have committed to that, but... It uh, was kind of nutty. You, you learn. You live and you learn. So. And you're, st- you're going to be doing Dev Days in Boston with us. Right. And in Boston, I'm going to be wide awake... Because I'm going to take all sorts of Benadryl and whatever the night before so that I can fall asleep and have a good night's sleep, wake up and give a good talk. So it's going to be good. Yeah. And for those who, um, you know, thinking that Dev Days is kind of ho-hum, yawny, boring, it's really good this year. We were doing two tracks. We're doing a smart client track and we're doing a web security track. And the web security track has lots of things that you wouldn't necessarily uh, think about uh, in, in the security realm things that we haven't even discussed here, and uh, good stuff. Also, uh, you get to see InfoPath, you get to see BizTalk 2004, and uh, the closing keynote is like an hour of Whidbey, you know? 
get to see what's new in Whidbey. And what is it, like $99 for the day? Uh, less. I think it's like 89 bucks. Okay, 89 bucks. That's nothing. What a deal. Yeah. And you also get to hang out with your local Microsoft uh, sales group and the local regional directors, and you know they're always good fun to, to uh, hang out with. But um, Pat Hines, who's the regional director for Boston, and I always do up you know, some sort of shtick uh, at every Dev Days. We started it last year with a sort of the blue pill, red pill theme, you know, this sort of matrix thing. And we were I was actually the top-rated speaker, Dev Day speaker. Not that the rest of the RDs oh, aren't Mr. awesome. Fancy. I, I'm not bragging. Mr. Fancy Dev Days. Yeah, I'm not saying that the rest of the RDs aren't <laughs> awesome. They did a great job. I think it was actually partly the venue. We were at Foxwoods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how can you not be happy at Foxwoods? You can't, you know, you can always, because you're always thinking, you know, if this sucks, I can just go win some money (laughs) (laughs) or go have some great, great food or whatever, listen to a band. But, uh, but Pat's, uh, Pat's talk was, and, and I, we did it together. We tag teamed and, and that's how we do it. So he and I both do Hartford and he and I both do Boston. Um, so this year the theme was James Bond and we're like, at the point now where we're looking at all these new toys, these new tools that are coming out, and we're kind of like in Q's lab, you know, looking at all the gadgets, looking at the, you know, the ray guns and the, the pocket knives and the things that shoot pellets across the street. And uh, But the difference is that in nine months, they'll all be in Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> or in six months, you know, nine months, whatever. So that was Pat's idea. So I actually played Toy Boy, just like I did last week. And we had fun. We had a and we we did a great job. Anyway, so here we are, wide eyed and bushy tailed. Yeah, I'm feeling a lot better. You've been really, really good to me all week. I want to say that everybody. Carl has been. He's given me an incredibly good welcome. I mean, I've been I've been sleeping in his studio. I've been eating his food, eating with his family. You yep. know, wearing his underwear, using his toothbrush. Yeah, and the hookers helped. You know, that, <laughs> right. all the hookers that came over last night. You know, they were compliments of Franklin's net. You know, yeah, there's there there's go. perks. <laughs> you know, like syphilis. Um, that was a joke, honey. <laughs> I I didn't mean that. That was just a joke. I can vouch for that. We didn't we didn't actually do anything last night. In fact, he made me drill holes in the walls. <laughs> and, and actually, we did do something a little weird last night. You you started a sort of a firestorm on your weblog, right? The last couple of days, yeah. And we just sort of played into that. Uh, but it, tell us how it started. It started. I was reading uh, my usual blogs. And I was getting caught up because I hadn't had a chance to read everything during the week while I was doing everything else and getting situated. And one particular blog, coolbits.nu, uh, by this friend of mine, Avenel, had a post in it that was pointing to an article by Kathleen Dollard. Mm-hmm. And in the article, Kathleen was arguing that Microsoft is possibly losing hobbyist coders with the complexity of .NET. Hobbyist coders being non-professional coder. Right, like I run a flower shop and I need to have an application that is going to help me manage my flower shop. My expertise is in flower shoppiness. It's not in writing applications. I am a hobbyist coder. And uh, she was arguing, Kathleen was arguing, that hobbyist coders are kind of like the canaries in the caves. Well, in the the mines, the miners take down, and that when the canaries start dying or disappearing, then it could mean trouble for the miners. So the point is that as we lose hobbyist coders with .NET, there's a possibility that it's an indication that .NET might be a little too complex. And and I kind of took a different approach. I was thinking that 
For me, .NET is actually simpler. It's easier. It makes more sense. It's more streamlined than anything I've used before. But you're not a hobbyist programmer. Right. I'm not a hobbyist programmer. Right. And I was also arguing that I didn't think that Microsoft should concern itself with the hobbyist uh, demographic. As much as they do. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or in other words, the hobbyists are going to figure out a way to catch up. If they really want to use .NET, they're going to figure out a way to get involved with it. And just to be fair, you didn't mean that they should, you know, not address that crowd at all. Exactly. The idea is not to ditch hobbyists. Right. The idea is to not cater to them at the expense of the professional. Right. Who which, has to use these tools every day. Right. In other words, let's not go backwards to VB6 access. You know, let's move forward with the exactly. .NET. Give me all the rich stuff. And if you want to throw some high-level things on there for the hobbyist programmer, that's fine. But understand, I think, what you were saying is that it's not for you. Exactly. And it's for them. Not right. for you. And I was also being called an elitist occasionally. <laughs> and I wanted to make it clear that I, more than anybody, want a simpler, easier, more straightforward, cleaner programming model. Yeah. But I also want to retain some power. And uh, to that end, I think that that's probably why I've chosen .NET. Yeah. I'm not an elitist at all. So you touched some nerves, and man, there was just the, yeah. the fur was flying. Yeah, there's uh, there's quite the argument going on. And uh, you know, I couldn't help but chime in, and then somebody started calling me names, and, <laughs> and we basically started calling each other names, just being funny. And yeah. you know, we hope that people know that. But uh, yeah, it got a little messy, and it's still funny. going on. Um, but it's it's kind of a controversial topic. It is, and it, and it's sort of. Bubbling up. I mean, you know, it's 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 similar to the C sharp VB debate, but it's not really. I mean, a lot a lot of the C sharp programmers obviously want the things that you want, you know, and and actually the things that I want too. You know, when I advocate for the hobbyist programmer, it's it's so that we can add things on top of the com- the complex right. models, which I think is what Microsoft is doing anyway. So you know, it's kind of a moot point. You know, that's what they're yeah. doing. So anyway. Uh, I've got a few letters. Some are related to uh, this issue and some are in response to last week's show, which I thought was an awesome show. I love that show. That that was a great show. I, I had heard Ted Neward speak before, um, but I didn't really – I didn't know a whole lot about him. I had heard him talk about Rotor. And on that show, I had all sorts of newfound respect for Ted Neward. And Bruce was incredible in the sense that here he is, this super-duper Java guy. He's on this .NET show. And instead of things getting inflamed and turning into a big flame war, he yeah. he just provided sensible arguments, and it was a great, great talk. By the way, system.web.mail. Cool. Okay. Um, so let's uh, – yeah, I, and I learned – you know, I'm not a Java programmer. I've looked at it. I've, you know, looked at some Java. Obviously, it looks very similar to C Sharp, and, and I have a newfound respect for the innovation that Java um, brought into – you know the industry, right? Um, I never, I didn't get started writing real OOP code until VBNet and C Sharp, yeah. and uh, you know, I obviously limped along with VB before that. But you no, know, Java is valuable. But yeah. yeah, Java did some really, really great things, and um, there you go. Uh, so I have some email, as you know, we read email because uh, we get it, and why not read it? And it's also an opportunity to give out some useless crap. So this one comes from Jose, and it's a long. Uh, a long one, but I'll just read the a little bit of it. Hi. Uh, and Jose says, hi. I just ended the last show, and it is as good as the previous ones. Congratulations. One thing I missed in this Java.net uh, thing is some reference to the open source Sun Dialogues lately with questions as the one Don Box uh, talks about in a particular article, which we will link to. 
How can this change the way we think in Java when it becomes an open source language? Is Java becoming an open source language? I don't even know. I didn't know anything about that. I thought that uh, Sun wanted to kind of hang on. Well, I think, you know, Don Box has been so much, but. talking about that. There's been a little bit of buzz. I don't know what's going on, though. We'll have to find out. It was some references in the program, but not updated to this latest news. So we will post links to those latest news yeah, items. That show could have gone on forever. That's the thing. Oh, yeah. we, we missed a lot of things that we could have talked about. So, of course, there are going to be issues we weren't able to touch on because it's a huge topic. Yeah. And my, my brother, the Java programmer, Jay, uh, he said the same thing. He said it was too short. Yeah. You know, we could have talked for four more hours, and I agree. And we will have we will have Ted Another back. Another show like that, absolutely. Uh, also, about tools to integration integration tools, I am evaluating uh, one produced with part of Monocode that allows uh, you to build front ends in ASP.NET for J2EE systems, among other things. It is at uh, mainsoft.com/products. Blah blah blah. Uh, and it's funny to write using the Java classes in C Sharp or Java using part of the BCL the one in mono. One part I agree with totally is a discussion about the different cultures. I have got the same feeling that that was expressed in the conversation. I really get tired, got tired some time ago when all the technical discussion uh, needs to end in Microsoft or the evil empire rather than a rational approach to the differences. Kind regards and thanks for this new and excellent program. Please continue like this for a long time. Jose, (laughs) Jose, we will. And uh, just to prove it, we're going to send you a .NET Rocks coffee mug. Enjoy it, my friend. Uh, we just wanted to give a shout-out to uh, Ed Marquis, Ed Marquez. I'm sorry, Ed, M-A-R-Q-U-E-Z, Marquez, from the West Coast. And he just signed up for the newsletter, wanted us to give him a shout. How you doing? Uh, this one comes from Daniel Peterson. Uh, the subject is Gasoline for the Flames. And some comments on show <laughs> no. 52. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Carl. And this one is long. Uh, this is the long one with code samples and stuff, so I'm going to pick and choose just a few highlights. I have some small comments to the latest show that I tuned into, uh, Java with Ted Neward and Bruce Tate. By the way, record downloads this week. Yeah. This is, this is a very, very popular show. First of all, I'd like to pour some more gasoline on the .NET, .NET language flames. I'm really a C-sharp guy that moved over. Okay, well, let's just get rid of that one now. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding, please. All right. I'm really a C-sharp guy that moved over from C++, but during the last year, I have worked in a mixed environment with VBNet, C-sharp, and native C++. Learning VBNet after C-sharp was really simple, but I came to realize that most statements that were made about VB.net was wrong. VB.net really can do the same things as C-sharp, it even has some features that I would like to see in C-sharp, like the handle syntax, but there are a few minor drawbacks with VBNet. Okay. Background compilation. This is a great feature, but it has to be smart. Currently, if the project file is big and the computer is slow, you end up with a development environment that doesn't work, and the great background compile feature has become counterproductive. Well, okay, so make sure you have a computer that's gutsy enough to handle that feature. At um, least a Pentium 166. At least. <laughs> at least. And you may want to have a little bit more than 128 megs of RAM. 129. Yeah, 129 would be preferable. Okay. And also, there was a bug in the first version of Visual Studio.net that, uh, that you know, made background compiling grind to a halt if it was a big project. That has been fixed, so it is no longer a problem. That may be your issue as well. Uh, but I see that as a feature, not a problem. Handles keyword. This is also a great feature, but it has a drawback. It hides code from the developer. Um, 
Okay. The code that is put into the assembly doesn't match what I wrote, and that is a big hazard when working with multi-threaded applications and control.invoke. Good point. I have experienced application deadlocks that originated from the invisible code. Okay, someone screwed up and sync-locked an event of another object during the firing of events, but that's another question. Oh! Uh, so, once again... Where are we pointing fingers now, Yeah, that's right. Is that really something that we can blame on the language? Uh, he does have another comment here. Second, I'd like to comment on the non-programmer language approach. This really isn't a good idea. Here in Sweden, the IT boom hit us hard and suddenly. Uh, suddenly, everybody should develop IT solutions. A lot of people got into the business uh, that didn't or don't have a clue about the most simple fundamentals. They learned VB6 and or HTML and started to hack away. And what is the result? Failure. I'll tell you what the result is. Contracts for me, my friend. All right? <laughs> These people are good for my business. Okay. Uh, tons and tons of failed and out-of-control projects. I could go on and on with samples, but the conclusion is simple. If you don't understand software, don't try to develop it. Therefore, we shall not invent non-programmer languages. Well, okay. Then uh, it won't be a language. It'll be a system for creating an application. That's exactly right. And, you know, this is the key. This is the point that I was making on your blog, Rory, right. which is that... VB6 is not optimal plumbing code, all right? It, it sucks for plumbing code. It's basically an obfuscator for COM, and you really have to understand COM in order to understand that whole system. So, yes, you're going to have situations where VB programmers are making assumptions about what's happening under the hood that are completely incorrect because they're uninformed, and they need to be informed, and I think that's the key. With .NET, Microsoft has fixed the plumbing problems. All right? There you go. They've fixed the plumbing problems. There are no plumbing problems like Com has. There also is a solid foundation, and this is continuing with Longhorn, a solid foundation for the low-level handling of code, the garbage collector, all that kind of stuff that now you don't have to do because you're programming in a managed language. So there's nowhere to go but up in higher-level and higher-level systems. And what Rory's saying and what I'm saying in different words, but it's true, is that the reason that you write software is because, because there's demand for it. And the reason there's demand is because the guy you're writing it for can't just go download it. All right. So if there was software out there that he could download and or drag, drop, and create and snap his fingers somehow and create – and it would do everything that he needs, you wouldn't have a job, right? So what is going to happen eventually is that we're going to find these systems that are all based on managed code, so they're going to be absolutely righteous, where you know he's going to communicate his requirements somehow to that computer, and the Maybe computer's the going to write the code. Whatever. Whatever. Biz talk orchestration is the closest Something. thing I can, can you know, think of. And that thing is going to write the code in total, and uh, and there you go. And so there's going to be less and less need for your services. It's a ways off. But it's definitely a ways off. But, but it's going to you happen. You can't deny that right. it's going to happen. Right. So there you go. Off well, my soapbox. Good depressing way to start. The <laughs> I know. I know. You're all going to lose your job someday. And there was one guy on your blog who was just like depressed after yeah. I said that. And you know, well, yeah, but it's so far off. It really is. And not I only mean, that is that everything's going to be changed by then. We're going to have new roles. We're still exactly. going to. There's still going right. to be a need for people with the brains to do things above and beyond that. Right. Okay. You'll have to change the computer's diaper or whatever that's writing the code for you. Right. We'll, we'll have to maintain something. Something. That's right. <laughs> 
You'll need, there's definitely going to be a need for smart people, so yeah. don't give up your hope and your education just yet. And if it's a four-year degree, remember you can major in whatever you want and then do whatever you want later on. You can major in Spanish and become a doctor, you know. So You can major in chemical engineering and become a programmer. Like your brother, right? Yes. Wait, was that, is that what your brother did? No, he majored in some other kind of engineering. Marine engineering, naval yeah, architecture. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, Rory. So, Carl. I think it's time for Google Weirdos. <laughs> Again, we don't have a, a, a song yet, but we will. We were busy with Dev Days and everything else this week, but we'll get it. Yeah. We'll All get right. you your Google Weirdos music, Mr. Weirdo. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> let's define what Google Weirdos is. We had a for, little... the, for those of you who don't know, Google Weirdos is this thing that I was putting together on my blog. It became a popular little feature. And uh, the idea is that I, I comb my referral logs for the, for the search engine phrases, and I look to find the most interesting ones. And then I post a few of them on my site, and I add a little one-liner commentary or something like that, just to add a little bit of color. But for the most part, these things are strange enough and weird enough that I don't need to add, an- add anything to make them interesting because people are just freaking strange on their own already, <laughs> so I don't have to do anything. And we kind of, we're kind of we turning this into a smaller segment for the show. Right. You do this on a regular basis on your right. web blog. Right. And this is going to be a regular thing on the show, too. Um, and it's changing a little bit because as it grows in popularity, more and more people every week are trying to contact me through Google Weirdos. Right. So instead of getting fan mail, although I guess fan would actually be a strong word for it because <laughs> some of this stuff is about as warm and friendly as a swift kick to the groin. But I'm getting some kind of contact from my readers through the Google Weirdos, which is fascinating. People are writing to me through Google. <laughs> <laughs> that is weird. All right. It, it's kind of like using Excel as a database. But anyway. <laughs> so this time I'm going to start out with five messages that were sent to me through Google. I'm going to okay. have to start dividing those out, separating them. Um, but they're kind of cool, which is why I want to do them. So here's the first one. Okay. Rory Blythe, he's the man. If he can't do it, no one can. And I got to tell you, <laughs> that's a fine thing to stick in Google. All right. <laughs> and that, that that's from Mark Kenyon. And Mark's been a... Oh a yeah, regular commenter. Yeah, regular regular listener yeah. too. Yeah, so gotta get a shout out to Mark. Um, we got another one here, Rory Blythe. Hello from Down Under, which is great because the Aussies have been a really yeah they love us. Yeah, they, even though they have to get up at four in the morning to listen <laughs> to the show, right? And and I get them on the blog and everything. Aussies are great, so I wanted to give them a shout out. Shout out to all of Australia. Um, Australia rocks. Yeah, Rory Blythe. Smart device. I got your smart device right here. <laughs> I don't know what that person's talking about. It's probably from the Bronx. <laughs> I got your smart device right here. Then we got Rory. I want to be a Google weirdo. Well, you are now. Congratulations. We have Rory Blythe has grape-sized hemorrhoids. <laughs> they're not actually. They're sort of like currants. Okay, getting treatment. Everything's better now. So those are all the those are all the I'm going to contact Rory Blythe through, through right. Google Weirdos and and those are and those are kind of like not as fun as the ones that just landed on your blog by accident right exactly but I, I like them just because it's it's a fun way to communicate with it people. is it it's is. clever some of these people are getting pretty clever and so. by the way speaking of Google you you have the number one site for Rory for at Rory le- at least for the time being I am the number one Rory on the internet so if you go to Google and type Rory you're so the top, you're number one yeah. For wow. a, for the moment, I was number one last week too, and then it plummeted back down to two again. But uh, for the moment, I am one. So moving on, we have what to do before you die. 
I mean, that's just oh weird. Oh, my God. Like somebody's sitting there on their deathbed and just Googling for how do I prepare for this? Well, I don't know. I can pack your suitcase or I don't know. I guess if I, if I knew that I were about to die, I would probably strap dynamite to my body, uh, drive my car off a bridge and do heroin on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> just go out and have a good time on the way down. Just go out with a bang. So that's my advice to you. Next oh, one well. is what people think about me. And this, these sorts of searches confuse me because they're so general. I mean, Google, Google's searching, what, like 8 trillion web pages? And it's just supposed <laughs> to know who you are? And it's supposed to care? Yeah, it doesn't. Here's another wow. good one. Carl Franklin, Rory Blythe, gay marriage, white trash hell. <laughs> <laughs> you have described my week. <laughs> yeah. It's it's been a little bit like being married to you, Carl. You know, <laughs> sleeping on your futon, eating your food. Yeah, and you know the the funny thing was the interaction you had with Tom the other day. No, oh no! no. Oh yeah. no! Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I've been having to shower, and all I've got is a shower on the fourth floor. He's here staying, in the at, office. The office, yeah, staying at the office, basically, while he's looking for a place. <laughs> and I was downstairs on the fourth floor in the middle of the night, just wearing a towel and carrying my toiletries around. And this guy goes, Tom. I later find right, out. Right. Go, goes walking into uh, a door. And and uh, he said, and there's he, you in a towel, right? Yeah, he looks yeah. at me. He gives me these funny, weird eyes. Like, what are you doing <laughs> down here? And I just look at him, and I don't know what to say. This is when I'm still in my two hours of sleep, and I wasn't thinking straight. And I'm standing there, just body glistening. And I said, "Oh, I'm here with Carl Franklin." I was like, "Oh, damn!" <laughs> I mean, that's not what I mean. I mean, I'm sleeping in Carl's bed. I mean, wait, no, that's no good. I mean, Carl and I are kissing upstairs. Ah, oh, no, that's not. No, yeah. So that was that was not, probably not the best way to introduce myself, but just the wrong thing kept coming out. Absolutely. And then moving on, we've got baby seal eating. What? In a world of six billion people, Carl, there's. Just room for everybody, right? Baby seal eating. Baby seal eating. I want to know what you wrote to make people get there from baby seal eating. I was reviewing one of the Portland Nerd Dinners or writing it up. And that was one of those weeks where I posted one of my Linux versus Microsoft opinion things. It's actually not so much versus, but it always turns into that. Uh And I decided to have a little bit of fun and talk about how at the Nerd Dinner we engage in the ritual Microsoft baby baby seal clubbing. Oh, okay. Because we're all so evil that the people who hang out with Microsoft types. I got it. Types, so it yeah. was a tongue-in-cheek thing gone awry. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, somebody actually found it and was like, are you serious about clubbing seals? Oh, God. I was like, yeah, we were at the mall. We got the seals out. We clubbed them at the mall. It was really <laughs> great. It was a little I saw a bumper sticker, you know, how, how they have, I heart my dog like I love my dog. Yeah. I saw one, I spayed my cat. Oh, no. And then I saw another one, I club seals, you know. God, that's club. so bad. It's really bad. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. And this hits kind of close to home because we went to the aquarium yesterday. Yeah. Carl and I took his two-year-old to the aquarium, and she slept the whole time. It's one of those great situations where you go for the kid, but it's obvious that the grown-ups are the ones who wanted to go. Well, she slept until we were ready to go, and then she started <laughs> running around, Nemo, Nemo, Nemo. <laughs> so Carl and I went and watched the sea lion show, and we kind of clapped. We were like, yay, sea She lions. was awake for that. Yeah, that's true. She yeah. was awake for that. Well, it was enthralling. Those things yeah, are fascinating. Yeah, it was. Yep. Okay. So moving along, we've moving got along. how to scream while singing. And I just want to tell you that unless you've got two throats or you're one of these Tuvan throat singers, you're not going to have a lot of luck with that. You have one facial orifice, and you're going to have to either <laughs> scream or sing, do one or the other, one at a time. But if you do want to learn how to scream, I can provide consultation in that area for a small hourly rate, <laughs> as you will find out later on in the show when we play my song. Yeah, that's right. We're going to play some original Rory music. Here. Yeah, so stick around. Uh, we've got... This one, some of them don't make any sense. These searches shouldn't wind up anywhere. It says, okay. Braun, B-R-A-U-N, Braun Method Squirting. What okay. the hell is that? 
Braun method squirting. I really don't know, man. That's why. Wait it's a minute, Google squirting weirdos. code. You squirt, squirt code. Don't you try know? to rationalize this. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fine attempt, but don't. Yeah, it's not going to work. Braun method squirting. Then we got another one here. Who are these people? I want to know. People getting pooped on. Oh, what come on. What kind of a weirdo are you? Good Lord. And how'd you get to my side? Yeah, what, that's kind of embarrassing. It says something about me, really. <laughs> uh, we got another one. What do guys think of urinals? Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you. If they're the stand-up in the wall kind, then it's okay as long as there's not too much splashback. Um, if they're the kind of open on the floor where it's just sort of a bowl sticking up like what they have at the movie theater where you have no privacy at all. It's the kind of quality technical education you get on .NET Rocks, folks. <laughs> These are, well, you know what, though? We talk about the technical stuff, but you have to talk about the non-tech stuff because where are we going to have discussions about urinals if we don't have them here? I actually got an email last week, and I didn't read it, from somebody who said, I'm really enjoying your show, but... You know, do we really have to have all the foul language? I mean, I can, can I really send my students to your site as a learning resource? And the answer is no. Don't don't <laughs> send a, a you know a grade school person to my site. Yeah, you, know. you, you can send your college students. Because your college students, fine. They got mouths like drunken sailors, and they're That's going right. out we're on the no, weekends. And we do nothing compared to what they right. say. Yeah, we're pretty tame, really. And then finally, lastly... Except for it, that pooped on thing. That was just <laughs> over the top, Rory. And I think we ought to beep that. Well, you know what it is? <laughs> well, you know what, though? My girlfriend and I were talking about this. Poop is almost more obscene than the other words for the same matter. And we don't know why, but it bothers us more than using the other words like the S-H Maybe word, because right? it links us to animals, you know? It sounds so base and visceral. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so last one is, is it safe to sunbathe naked? And yeah, in my backyard especially, so... You, you have sun in Portland? Not exactly. When it's when it stops raining, we go outside and we get tanned. So. Ah. Okay. So that's Google Weirdos for the week. Google it was a little weird. Weirdos. <laughs> it was also, yeah. I had less to choose from because my wonderful hosting company, Webhost for Life, which takes down one service each week temporarily, um, <laughs> decided to stop <laughs> logging everything for the first three days of this month. So I'm missing stats. And for the last day last month, I'm missing stats. I'm missing Google searches. Well, we'll move you over here to a real hosting company soon. Yeah. Yeah, and what do you expect for ten bucks a month? Right, nine ninety five. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Let us split hairs. Yes. Well, my friends and uh, my listeners out there, how many uh, Jeff? How many people we have listening live right now? He's my uh, sixty four. Wow, better than last week, actually, and no glitches. So, Rory, our guest today is none other than the ADO connection string guru, Carl Prothman. And uh, Carl Prothman, he is a Microsoft ASP.NET Most Valuable Professional, MVP. He holds a Certified Computer Professional, CCP, from Institute of, for Certification of Computing Professionals, ICCP. Boy, I'm in acronym hell here, Carl. <laughs> As an internationally known .NET training and INETA speaker, uh, Carl has spoken at several major conferences such as VS Live, VBits, TechEd, and also to several local user groups such as the Seattle.NET Users Group and the .NET Developers Association in Redmond, Washington. Carl teaches ADO.NET and ASP.NET at Bellevue Community College, BCC, in Redmond, Washington. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Aeronautics and Astronautics. Wow. A, a genius among us, Rory. Right. We're not worthy. 
uh, degree from University of Washington. Carl has worked for customers such as Microsoft, Boeing, and Rockwell International and is currently the president of Able Consulting. And by the way, uh, CP, which is what I'm going to call you, otherwise I'll be talking to myself, I looked at your resume online and it's pages and pages and pages and pages. This is just the tip of the iceberg of what you do. So welcome to .NET Rocks, Carl. Well, thank you. Or CP. CP, how are you? I'm actually doing fairly well. Yourself? Good, good. You sound good. It's yeah. nice to talk to a West Coaster. It is. Well, for Rory especially because, you know, that's his stomping grounds. So, Carl, the um, I, I've known you for a long time. And uh, the thing that uh, your, your historical uh, claim to fame, in my class anyway, is your website of just hundreds and hundreds of connection strings for every possible data source known to man. <laughs> that has turned out to be a very impressive thing that anyone to anyone I show. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, probably the largest collection of ADO and ADO.net connection strings on the internet. It begs and the question, Carl, why isn't there a official repository? I mean, why is it why did they well, leave it up to you to do that? Well, there is, and it's, you know, there's all these connection strings, so well, most of them are in MSDN. It's just a little difficult to find. So Oh, okay. And part of my frustration was trying to find these connection strings. And so I started to record them. And then I thought, well, heck, I'll just publish them. And then I started getting <laughs> these connection strings from all over the world, people saying, hey, you don't have this one. Right. Oh, wow. It just kind of grew from there. So. Wow. So just be, by being a focal point for connection strings, they just sort of came to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. So you have up there, you have... Uh, because Carl and I were talking about it earlier this morning over coffee. So what do you have? You have a big list, and is it sort of like templates, and people can just grab them, fill in the blanks, and run? Or how how does this work? Well, it's basically, um, if you go to my website, uh, mm-hmm. www.able-consulting.com, mm-hmm. and click on Technology okay. tab, you'll, you'll see a connection page. And I list all of the OWC drivers, um, all of the OLADB providers, and... And the newer .NET data providers. Nice. I also list some of the older technology, like RDS, mm-hmm. um, which Microsoft considers obsolete now. Right. Things like that. Okay, so that's actually a good thing because, as Carl yeah. and I were also talking about, there's no standard here. Everybody's just kind of implementing willy-nilly, doing whatever they want to do. And I've definitely had the problem of having to go and look things up. I had no idea it was on MSDN. Yeah, I didn't either. I actually. didn't have a clue that there was anything up there like that. Not not a complete list, but right. you know, there, it's separated out in different sections. A little hard to find in there. Right, and you have Oracle, you have MySQL, you have you know, comma separated files. I mean, you have everything. Hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the most common mistake most people make with connection strings is they put the space before and after the equal sign, hmm. and um, and then when the parser reads to that, it it doesn't uh, doesn't pick up the name correctly or or the database, things like that. Hmm. And, and the other one is people tend to put an incorrect database or server name in there. And some of the error messages you get back are, are fairly, you know, can, you can tell what's going on, but in some cases you can't. Um, what most bytes people is uh, creating an instance or connection to an instance of SQL Server. Hmm. And you have to have a backward slash, you know, server name, backward slash, and then an instance name. And uh, if you're going to connect from the uh, client, you have to have MDAC 2.6 installed, which a lot of people don't know. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're, you're uh, up on all the versions of MDAC and their issues and their problems. And... Yeah. Because there I, were uh, some 
there were some more recent ones that that caused more problems than they fixed, right? Yeah. The 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 bottom line is you should really everyone should always do a Windows update and get hmm. the latest patches. Right. Right. And even with Office, you want to make sure you do the uh, Office update. Um, make sure everything's up to date in there also. As of this recording, it's 2.8. Are we up to? Yeah, I, I believe that is the current version. So what have you been working on lately, Carl? What's what's in foremost in your mind technology-wise? Well, you know, I'm an independent consultant, so I've been contracting off and on over at Microsoft on different jobs and currently working for a client in Bellevue and uh, building ASP.NET websites. Can, can you, you talk about what you've been doing at Microsoft? Yeah, or do you have one of those Bible-sized NDAs that... <laughs> <laughs> I have signed so many NDAs over there, it's unbelievable. Well, that's perfect. So you don't even know what you signed, which means you could probably talk about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know, mostly have been end-tier um, ASP.NET uh, SQL Server backend type of application. Cool. And, uh, you know, some, some really cool web services that... Uh, that provide data from huge back-end databases, main, main role databases, things like that. So, so what else have you been working on aside from the Microsoft stuff? Well, I've been real busy with the .NET Developers Association. I'm the president of that user group. Okay. Um, now, that's different from INETA, right? Right, right. INETA is the more the international umbrella type of organization, and they provide speakers to uh, you know the growing worldwide community of uh, .NET user groups. And um, if you belong, if the user group belongs to INETA, they get like three speakers per year. They can request. And uh, yeah. So you know, I've I've gone. I'm one of INETA speakers and have gone right. to different user groups. You're you're an INETA speaker too, right? Carl? Yep, yep. 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 That's a, always great fun. You know, oh, yeah. INETA basically flies us around the world and lets us talk to user groups who would norm- normally not have the the resources to to get you to come and speak to them. Are so. you serious? Yeah, yeah. They fly they you do. around the world? Yeah, usually in your area, right? So right. around right. the world in your zip code. <laughs> no, 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 no. In like the United States. Like right. I can go anywhere okay. in the United States really. They they try to get, you know, speakers who are in Europe for European user groups obviously and for other countries, but or a transplanted right. Portland Oregonian to go speak in Barcelona. Yeah, that may be. Yeah, I can dream. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good because I I've always wondered about Ineta. Yeah. Right? It's one of these things that I always hear about, but I've never really quite that's nailed what they down do. what they do. Yeah, huh. they represent you know all the user, all the .NET user groups out there. They're funded by Microsoft and by uh, other companies that just want to help the cause. And uh, you know, a a user group will request a certain speaker or a certain topic, and Ineta will send out email to the speakers bureau and you know who wants to go, and they mm-hmm. they put it together and. They give you a stipend. It's not much, but you know you do it for the exposure and you do it for the fun of it. And yeah, right. yeah. So I've been pretty busy with the .NET Developer Association, and in you know our, our website www.netda.net. Cool. If people are interested, we we meet at Redmond uh, on the Redmond campus every Monday night. Uh, the first Monday is our web developers meeting, and Paul Litwin uh, heads that up. And then the yep. second Monday is our general meeting, and I head that one up. Our third Monday is we alternate between database and beginner. Database is uh, Bill Vaughn does that one, and oh, beginner cool. is Brad Connell. Hmm. And then we just added a fourth Monday, um, Visual Basic, and Robert Green will be hitting that one up. All right. That's our friend Robert out there. Yeah. Robert and, and I sort of have a similar mission, although his is officially Microsoft and mine is sort of out there in the periphery, but uh, it's to to sort of 
as you said, you, as we were talking about hobbyist programmers, to bring back the stranded Visual Basic programmers into the fold of .NET, right. you know, as painlessly as possible. Exactly. I, and I really think Widby is going to help a lot in that regard. You know, and as .NET programmers, you should really know both C Sharp and BB.NET. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I Absolutely. agree. And, you know, as uh, Dan as Dan Appleman said on our second show, Carl, he said that uh, somewhere, somewhere along the line, a company is going to pay you more money to write the program in C Sharp, and you have a moral obligation to take that money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, though, it definitely is important because I'm looking at a I'm I'm a C Sharp programmer by day, but I'm looking at a contract right now that I understand would involve some VB.NET programming. And right. fortunately, that's I. When I got started with .NET, I was doing a lot of VB.NET work. Right. So it, it's absolutely important to understand the differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find VB.NET uh, extremely easy to program with because uh, I don't have to worry about the case sensitivity. Sure. Which always bites me, you know. And yep. then that, those me darn too. semicolons. <laughs> well, and there there are a couple more areas, and I like to bring this up whenever I'm talking about the advantages of VB.NET. There's yeah. two areas. One is that events are saner. I li- I, I like the C sharp method of doing events because I've gotten used to it and it makes sense to me. But at the same time, the handles keyword is really nice. And then number two is late binding. Whenever I'm doing anything with late binding, I whip out VB.net. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that in C sharp. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you can definitely code a lot faster in my opinion with VB.net. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah I can, I can definitely, but you're right. It is good to do both. Some, you know, everybody's got a, a highly char emotionally charged opinion about that. Mostly <laughs> right. because, and we were talking about this too, is that I think that programming in your language sort of gets to the heart of who you are, you know, your ego and uh, it's so closely linked to your ego. And I think especially for men because, and this is something you may have not thought about, you know, women can create life. Let's face it. They, they've they got this power to do this. You know, we we participate in the ritual, but we really do a very <laughs> small part. Right. And, you know, it's just an amazing thing that, that a woman can do. And so, you know, men are left to technology to sort of do that. And writing a program is in my life has been, you know, short of making a work of art or something like that, which is less intelligent, if you want to call it that. Writing a program is really the only way that you can create an intelligence that has a sort of a life of its own. And so I, I consider it a very human issue. And so when you when you say, you know, my programming language is better than your programming language, man, it's like to a guy, that's like saying your kid is the ugliest mother, you know, that I've ever seen in my life, yeah. because of it's got the curly braces on the side and he wears those stupid semicolons on his ears. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it really, I think that's that's really the issue, and that's why it's very hard to get a clear head about it. Yeah, my programming language is an honor student at Kirby Middle School. You know that kind of stuff. <laughs> Same sort of deal. Well, anyway. Um, we do have a question here for you, Carl, from a, sure. a, an alert listener. Uh, David Salmon says, I have a query which runs in about three seconds against an Access 97 database using MDAC 2.1. When I switched my VB6 project to use MDAC 2.5, the query now takes about 55 seconds on average. The query was not changed at all, and the database is the same. I haven't uh, tried MDAC 2.8 yet, but why would the query take be that sluggish just by switching to 2.5? Right. So he's probably using the DSN uh, uh, through OWC control panel. And when you switch from the, the older MDAC, um, I believe there was a uh, – it has a smaller cache 
uh, and so if you just delete that DSN and recreate it, um, it should have a lot faster performance. The other thing is you want to make sure you have the same the versions of the um, JET database uh-huh. and MDAC. So if you go through the if you're using the 4.0 um, OLEDB provider, I don't know what he's using, so I'm either jump between OLEDB drivers or we're actually going to try providers. to we'll actually try to get him on the phone here so he yeah, can explain and, that. And uh, but if, if you'll have a performance hit if you go from the 4.0 OLEDB provider to a JET 3.31 uh, or whatever it was, 3.5. 3.5, yeah. Um, yeah, and so you you want to upgrade your, your database uh, to the 4.0 version. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Is And is that, you think, a, a definite, uh, definitely the, the issue there, or is, could yeah, it be something it, else? Depending on you know what driver or OLEDB provider he's using, um, it's... It, it could be one of those issues, but uh, I have um, a bunch of FAQs uh, up on my website, and uh, in addition to the call and connection strings I have up there, and uh, and one of those questions uh, deals with that performance issue right there. Okay, hmm. great. Wow, that was, that was so, great. Yeah. yeah, guy, whoever you are out there with your question, go to that. Yeah, go to the site. Definitely, yeah. and check that out. So, what have you been doing with ASP.NET? You say you've been uh, working on a lot of ASP.NET applications. Uh, what what kinds of things have those involved? Well, you know, some of the issues that I've uh, been dealing with lately are, are security. You know, you know. Yeah, I hear that's with, a popular topic. Yeah, <laughs> um, especially with the uh, SQL injection and cross-site scripting. Yeah, those and, are probably the two biggest uh, biggest problems that that you have, especially with the old ASP style. Exactly. You know, with all this legacy so, stuff floating you know, around. For your listeners, you know, with SQL injection is where a user is able to enter in either in a form or on a URL. Uh, SQL that will um, they can inject into uh, the actual query that's being or command that's being being run. The typical uh, example they give is where you have a login, you know, with an email and a password box, and in the email box you close it off with a you know uh, a single a, quote, a single quote, yeah. Yeah. and you know a semicolon and a go, and then a, a just a totally new SQL. Yeah. statement. So what happens is the if the programmer is putting and assembling a, a, a query string together just by concatenating the strings and they execute that, you know, you're basically giving them a window into your SQL right. server which they can do nasty things. So, you know, a lot of the advice I hear out on the internet or on, on the net is, uh, you know, use stored procedures. But that's really not at the heart of what really is a solution. It's the parameters, right? Yes, you have to use uh, SQL parameters uh, or OADB parameters. And and because the parameters will take care of the single quote problem for you. Okay. It doesn't allow single, you know, it will double the quotes up for you. And that way you can't do, you can't terminate a, you know, a one of the, um, a single quote and then an or, one equals one and a dash dash. That won't work anymore. So whether you're using, you're calling store procedures or you're using parameterized queries, Always, always use parameters. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And, and, you know, and the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when you create a SQL Server user in, in SQL Server 2000, um, the default database that it goes to is master. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, and since if they have access to master, and if you have, do have a SQL injection uh, hole, they're able to query the system tables then. And so right. one of the best practices is not to give um, access to the master database at all. Absolutely. See, that's a huge deal because one of the things I think about with SQL injection attacks is that a lot of the time 
people just simply aren't going to know anything about your database schema, but they're not going to have any problem, you know, figuring out about default tables and and system tables and things like that. Right. So right. You know, I've I've suggested uh, to the SQL folks uh, over at Microsoft that they they change this in Yukon, mm-hmm. and I and um, of course they have a different scheme now, so I believe it takes care of that problem. The other issue um, is cross-site scripting. Yeah. <laughs> And this is just a very common problem. I mean, a lot of programmers uh, don't even realize that this is a problem when they just um, they, the response back what the user has typed in. And uh, if they don't HTML encode it, then the user is able to enter in script. Hmm. And then they can redirect the user to another page, and it can look exactly like maybe um, the right. site that you're at and can collect information, and the user doesn't even know. So a lot of our listeners either might not be aware of this or know how to handle it. So what are you doing to deal with this? Well, there, there's two there's two schools of thoughts. Either you 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 filter on the input, mm-hmm. or you HTML encode on the output. And and my rule of thumb is um, you always HTML encode on the output, no matter what data where it came from. You, you know, because sometimes mm. you're you're typically pulling data out of the database. Well, you don't have a lot of control in some cases where that data comes from. Right. And so you always want to HTML encode on the output. Now, does that mean you shouldn't just set textbox1.txt equal to or label1.txt equal to just some raw text? You should put that into a string and HTML encode it and then set it into the label? Yeah. Text. You always do a, a, a server.html encode. And, um, and then, of course, the input. You know, you can stop uh, the... Uh, and you can, you can, maybe you can grep for the uh, or re- use a regular expression uh, validation control to look for script tags, and don't allow those. Or you, you know, another thing is you can uh, minimize the length. You know, set the max length of what they can enter in because a lot of these script cross scripting uh, attacks require long strings, mm-hmm. and so you can stop it also with uh, having you know setting the max length. Oh, good. And what are some of the nasty things people can do with cross-site scripting? Well, they can still, believe it or not, the cookie off your desktop. And you would think that, no, they can't access my desktop. A cookie right off your desktop? You mean yeah. just so off your... Yeah, off your, in your computer, you okay. know, off of a client computer. And, uh, and you know, most people think, well, how can they do that? I'm in my home somewhere, you know. And, mm-hmm. But, you know, they can, with this cross-site scripting, they um, are able to... Uh, redirect with uh, JavaScript and add the cookies um, to the URL. So when it goes to the you know some the hackers page, um, they can read the cookies. And if you store sensitive information in that cookie, um, you know like the example of a uh, credit card or whatever, sure. which you never want to do, they can they got it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. you don't definitely don't want to make credit card cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but how's the yeah. user going to know? You know. How are they exactly. going to, unless you comb your cookie? Here's a good plug-in for somebody to write, right? A little service that sits out there and looks at your cookie files and just, you know, for things like Visa, MasterCard, credit card, or something like that, to let you know when a site has put, you know, something sensitive in your Carl, in, that's in, worth in at least $10,000. We should have talked about that off the air. That's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Too late now. I, I'm constantly doing that, you know. Somebody will just ask me a question. Yeah, why don't you just blank? And it's some fundamental thing that just shakes their world, and I can't collect on that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. So that's, that's what, what community exactly. That's what this community is all about. Yeah. All right. Well, we have some questions uh, from one Ken McCord. We were trying to get him on the phone, but uh, 
apparently uh, he gave us his fax number um, and not his phone number. Ken, hi, guys. I've got a bunch of questions, but here are four, and I think one of them you've already answered. One, if you make a change to the web config file, are both your application and sessions stopped and restarted? Yes. Every time you make a change to web.config, it restarts your application, and hence the session application variables go away. And, and, am I wrong in thinking this, but doesn't it let any existing sessions continue until they're... I believe that is correct. It, okay. will, it will phase out and then... The new Apple startup yeah, if, as new users. It, right. If it's in the middle of spitting out a page, it's not going to just stop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Exactly. Uh, two, can you explain why when you set enable view state equals false, ASP text boxes, ASP check boxes, et cetera, are still repopulated? I thought these controls state was provided by view state, but when you turn enable view state to false, you still keep these controls state when doing a post. I'm confused about this, and so are just are about everyone else I talk to. Um, I haven't seen that behavior. When I turn enable view state off, it goes away. Yeah, I hmm. I don't think I've seen it before. But other, other than the only comment I have is you got to remember that the values in the controls are not in view state, right? So That's right. Yeah, yeah. When you when you do a post back, ASP will go ahead and pull the values and repopulate the controls. And maybe in this case, it's repopulating the value of that that, text, that checkbox. That's right. And not to sound like check your code, but <laughs> check your code, you know? <laughs> Make sure you're not doing it. Yeah. Um, by the way, on the show we did a long time ago, not too long ago, with Dino Esposito, he told me about uh, a, a trick that he did in his book, in his big tome, which I use as the uh, textbook for my ASP.NET class. And that is, he's he rewrote the the view state handling code in the page object. So he created he creates a new page object as most sane people do. And he overrode a couple of members, uh, private members or protected members, basically that that uh, persist and retrieve the view state data. And so his solution was to write it out to files to write the view state to a file with a unique name for that session on the uh, on the well with a unique name. I basically took that code, rewrote it as VBNet code, and put it in the session. So because it's in the session, uh, you know, it follows you from page to page, and it's specific to that particular person. And then you don't have to necessarily use the file system. You can use whatever system you're using for sessions underneath. So that's pretty cool. And what it does is it, is it, uh, it takes the view state data out of the web browser, that gets sent mm-hmm. to the client and instead puts it on the server, you know, which is in some cases um, a lot better, especially if you have a lot of view state data. There's some third-party tools that do that too. Uh, I know that Scott Hanselman pointed to one that sounded pretty slick. Cool. Yeah. And uh, David Salmon, who asked the question earlier, clarifies here. Uh, he says, can I use MDAC 2.5 against an Access 97 database using the JET 4.0 provider instead of 3.5? I will delete and or recreate the DSN as per your suggestion. Thanks. Okay. Um, yes, you can. You can use. Um, you know, I forget which version. So many versions. I forget which uh, version the 4.0 OLEDB provider uh, was released with. It was if it was 2.5 or 2.6. I believe it was 2.6. It's released in. Hmm. And the 2.5 might have the uh, 3.5 in it. Not too sure. I don't know. It's, so many versions of MDAC, and, right. and you know they yanked it out, uh, yanked the OLAB writer out, and they put it back in. Right, and I th- so I think uh, it still applies. You know, go up to Carl's site and and check it out in the yep. fact section. 
All right, Carl, uh, sit tight. We're going to have a musical interlude here. Rory's going to uh, lay on us some original tunes. Some and screaming. Some screaming. And uh, when we, we'll come back with the rest of the show. So we'll be right back. Never 
Hey, Carl here. I want to talk to you some about uh, ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. This is a product that uh, is in a new .NET version of their po- very popular Active Reports for uh, VB6, for COM applications. And uh, it goes back to the idea that we want to create a report and associate it with a particular project. Instead of having a report on a server somewhere, which is more like the Crystal Enterprise SQL Reporting Services model, we want to associate the report right in the application. Web application, ASP.NET, Windows application, Windows Forms, doesn't matter. So you create a report, you create a data source, you drag, you drop, you, you set up your controls on that report, and then you view that report. Now the viewer supports PDF, supports HTML, supports just standard text, and uh, you have all the, the great features that you need in a report builder, and best of all, it's not going to break the bank. So go out and download your evaluation copy exactly. of actorreports.net right now at www.datadynamics.com. All right, now let's get back to this great talk with Carl Prothman about ADO.net, ASP.net, connection strings, security. We're here at .NET Rocks. Don't go away. Rory, that was a pretty good tune. I enjoyed oh, that. Stop it. No, I really did. You know, it, it brought me back to my uh, high school days, the sort of uh, the 80s sound. I like that. The 80s sound? Yeah. The Well, I guess that's when I grew up, so there's there's going to be hints of the 80s in there. Yeah, it's like U2 kind of uh, very kind of hip sound. I sure. like it. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's actually one of our older songs. We've got a lot of stuff. Now, who's who's we? You, my buddy Felix, Felix Mercer. Cool. Uh, he's the guy I play music with back in Portland. Cool. And uh, he's just like super genius with, with the music. I, I just scream over it and I do the guitar parts and I help him write some of the music. But the, the, the cleanliness, the polish there, that's all Felix. He's really good with this wow. stuff. What is it? What does he use to publish it, to produce it with? Oh, man, everything. Uh, everything. We've, been, we've been using a lot of Logic. We've been using Reason. We've been using uh, Rewired. Mac-based stuff? No, it's all PC. Huh. Yeah, it's all PC. Sweet. Because we wanted to get our music machine for less than $3,000. <laughs> Everything's running on Windows. All right. Well, we're back anyway. And uh, before we bring Carl back, it's time for the Linux vulnerability of the week, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and uh, I just have to uh, qualify this by saying, no, we, we don't hate Linux. We don't hate Linux people. But what we want to do is give equal time to the vulnerabilities and the bugs in the Linux operating systems that you never hear about, uh, basically because people don't care. So we're doing some of that now. Just, uh, you know, Windows has bugs. We know it has bugs. We're not saying it doesn't. It's just, you know, equal time, right? Right. You know, everybody's got problems. Everybody's got not problems. Not just Windows, but it looks in the media like it's just Windows sometimes. And basically, we're refuting the, the claim by Linux zealots who say that uh, Linux doesn't have bugs. So this is not an attack. It's not even a defense. No, it's, it's just not. contributing to the greater corpus of knowledge. That's right. It's a knowledge. It's for your education, Edumication. folks. Edumication. Edumication. This one uh, was and happened on March 2nd, and this was released by the uh, LinuxSecurity.com advisories. Um, I won't go into the advisory number, but anyway, it is a rsync heap-based overflow. 
This is a heap-based buffer overflow in rsync before 2.5.7 when running in server mode. Allows remote attackers to execute arbitrary code and possibly escape the chroot jail. The Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures product at cve.mitre.org has assigned the name CAN2003-0962 to this issue. Thank you very much. <laughs> and that is our Linux Vulnerability of the Week. Linux vulnerability. Actually, you know what we can do? We can say that we're providing this service for our Linux users, for our Linux listeners, right? Y- yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> that That's what it's for, Carl. <laughs> 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 you know, while we're there, though, can I say the the one thing that Scott Stansfield said at uh, my user, user group meeting he talked at? Scott came and he talked, and he was saying that Windows users and programmers are like Coke drinkers. And Linux, Java, whatever else, they're like Pepsi drinkers. And the difference is that Coke drinkers are secure with themselves. They're like, hey, I like Coke. It's no big deal. I like to drink Coke. <laughs> and then the other people want you to drink Pepsi, right? Where'd the Pepsi taste test challenge come from, right? This is Pepsi. And uh, they're the ones who have the sort of all-honest slot. So for some Windows users, the idea of zealotry is kind of foreign. Because I notice that when I'm hanging out with my Windows buddies, they don't really try to shove anything down my throats or down anybody else's throats. Some of them do, of course, but I found much less zealotry in the Windows world. So it's not as familiar a topic for us because we're Coke drinkers. I don't see too much of that in, in the areas where I work. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, if you go out to the different news groups out there, you might uh, you might get some, you know... Bigots yeah. on you know, bigots, but uh, other plus than that, you're in you know, Redmond, right? So yeah, you know yeah. the Coke drinking capital of the world. That's yeah. right. The Pepsi people stay away, pretty much. <laughs> Another thing I've been doing is um, been involved with the uh, the MVP program, the Most Valuable Professionals. With oh Microsoft. yes. I don't know if folks out there know what the MVP program is. About I, it, I but found they they really don't. I mean, they people most people think that it's sort of an elite title, but not really sure what it means to them. Right. It's, it's basically Microsoft acknowledges, um, you know, folks who are active participating in you know, the Microsoft technical um, communities around the globe. You know, for example, uh, in the public news groups, if you go to msnews.microsoft.com, um, there's a whole range of news groups out there, and, and MVPs will go volunteer their time to answer questions out there. And you know, if you ask right. a question, nine out of ten times, an MVP will answer. And uh, the, the other other places, like uh, over in the forums on www.asp.net. Right. And if you have any kind of ASP.net questions, that's a great resource. How long have you been an MVP? Um, you know, I started back in 1998. Okay. Uh, I was a Visual Basic MVP, uh, and uh, Ed Hickey and John Perry were my MVP leads right, right. back then. And then I switched over to being an ASP.NET MVP in 2002 mm-hmm. with uh, Ben Miller as my MVP lead. Cool. And, yeah, so it's it's kind of cool. You know, we uh, they uh, are you going to go to the MVP conference this year? I'm not. I'm not able to go because I'm teaching. But I was going to say that uh, the the MVP program has sort of expanded its uh, requirements or its prerequisites. Uh, whereas before it was just the forums and the you know the news groups and things where people helped out. Now they're sort of giving MVP recognition to anybody who's in the community and visible in any medium, not just those. Right. It used to be just in the news groups. Right. Now, it used to be just in the news groups. Now we have weblogs. We have, well, .NET Rocks, for example. I became an MVP for Visual Basic last year. 
And a lot of it was, you know, because of what I'm currently doing in .NET Rocks, but also an acknowledgement of what I had been doing in the past with Carl and Gary's VB homepage and other things. Community work, basically. Community work, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and not, and just doing it because you want to help people. Exactly. Okay, but, but CP, as someone who is not an MVP, who is not a most <laughs> valuable, but simply a relatively valuable or maybe not even valuable at all P. Um, I'm one of so the lesser P on C sharp programmer. <laughs> right. um, what what goes on in the program? I've always wondered about this because there are a lot of acronyms floating around. You got the MVPs, you got the RDs, you got this, you got that. What do you do? Are you taken to some special island somewhere where they lavish you with gifts and and coconut flavored alcohol beverages, or what's going on? Well, you know, you know, we we volunteer our time, and and Microsoft recognizes um, by giving us free MSDN subscription. Oh, cool. And we go to a conference once a year. And uh, plus, well, we have private news groups where we can have access. To, yeah, I was going to uh, say questions. that's yep. that's the thing that really I enjoy out of it is because I can send an email to, you know, my my lead and say, hey, I'm having a problem with this product, and you get an email or a call back from somebody on that team. I mean, they give you access to the programming teams inside Microsoft. Exactly. Which is, you know, and they, as Carl was just saying, as CP was just saying, through the private news groups or through email. That's valuable. Yeah, and that's very valuable because then you're able to ask the, the you know the hard questions and right. and get responses back, and you can escalate things. And it's you know the program does a really good job in that area. So yep. huh. yeah. So, so in return for your hard work in the community, you're rewarded with access to information that makes you even better at what you've been doing already. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It is. Yeah. It's a good thing. I mean, I'm left out, but you know, <laughs> so if, if folks want to learn more about it, they can go to the mvp.support.microsoft.com website. You can nominate people, as I as I recall. That's that's correct. And, and if, if yep. people are interested in becoming MVPs, um, you know, send an email to the uh, to other MVPs, and and, and they can nominate. Uh, right. And folks. yes, Rory, I have nominated you. Cool. Yes. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I can't promise anything. Here comes I don't a make tropical those. island with the coconut flavored beverages. Right. He's gonna. The first question he's gonna <laughs> ask is, "Does Bill like Pepsi or Coke?" You know. <laughs> we have a question from Jan Eric, and uh, he's from Norway. SQL 2000 with no service pack versus SQL 2000 with SP3. A customer of mine has an ASP.NET application with a SQL Server 2000 without SP as back end service pack. Due to heavy load and security concerns, they bought a new server and I'm moving the database to it. The new server has Windows Server 2003 installed and because 2003 doesn't support SQL without SP3, uh, SP3 is added. But when I change the connection string to collect data from the new server, a lot of data is missing. I have isolated the problem to an outer join query. The SQL code uh, isn't altered in any way with the new install. Am I missing 26,000 records in the SQL 2000 with SP3 compared to SQL with no service pack? Are the, is there any change in how the SQL 2000 SP3 handles outer joins? Uh, by the way, he has called Microsoft Premium Support, but they had no clue. Spooky problem indeed. Well, if Microsoft Premium Support had no clue, what makes you think we're going to have any idea? <laughs> Yeah, that would be a good question for the one of the SQL Server um, MVPs. Hmm, I think, uh, the, and I would ask that question up in the yep. uh, public news groups, um, and hopefully one of the SQL Server MVPs can answer that. That's a perfect uh, a perfect way to get an answer from an MVP. Exactly. Um, also, you know, I have an, another caller who has an answer to that. He says, uh, "Your machine is possessed by Satan." 
<laughs> go to your local Catholic church, get some holy water, and sprinkle the holy water on the machine, and that should do the trick. Thanks. I'm surprised Sound he's, he's running a production machine without any SPs. That's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is crazy, actually. And uh, the also begs the question, why are you trying to return 26,000 records in a single query? <laughs> but we won't go there, Jan. Well, so you can bind them all to a list box. <laughs> yeah, I want to see that font. <laughs> that would be a very small font, as Bill Vaughn likes to say. Uh, another one here. Let me just uh, pull up this call from Dan Hawkins. Dan says, Hi, I heard the question about view state and text box values. I had the same question when I first started ASP.NET development and so went searching. What I found was that control values like text boxes are not handled by view state. They are automatically restored by matching the posted variable and control name. This article explains everything, and uh, he points us to a link that we will definitely put on the site. Right, right. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of paradigm shifts that occur when you go from ASP to ASP.NET, and in the and this is the most common area where people have problems because they're used to ASP where you had to pull the values manually out of the controls in the post pack mm -hmm. and repopulate them and then also set the state uh, of, you know, like for a dropdown, which item was selected. Right. Um, where ASP.NET does that for you automatically now. And, uh, you know, there's, there's other paradigm shifts that uh, folks should realize also. Um, and I can go through a few of those if you like. Yeah, That'd sure, please. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the um, uh, and I usually you know, I have a talk where I I give um I like give like ten paradigm shifts, but I'll just say a few uh, in, during this cool. time here. The main one, or actually there's several. But and nowadays, you know, rather than using the response dot write, you actually program against a server control, and so you you know rather than using the response dot write or percent equals, um, you use uh, use the control dot text for example, like text box dot and you're actually programming against a control um, that has properties, methods, and events. And uh, so it's, it, you know, that shift of, uh, not, not to say that you can't do a response equal or a response that right, but... Um, it's just uh, not the preferred way. Right. Yeah. You, you know, and so the other way, the other one is the um, you know, automatic HTML code generation back in ASP. You know, if you had uh, a low-end browser, um, Netscape or whatever, and you know the high-end IE, you, had, you actually had to had uh, forks in your code that would do the different HTML for those uh, types of browsers, and it became very complex. Well, now with ASP.NET, you know the the, the page will, will sniff to see what browsers out there and generate the correct HTML for the uh, for the browser, and this is a huge time saving. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, another thing you want to mention to those who are who are hearing about server side controls or, or controls for the first time is that they are running on the server, and uh, unlike controls that you would instantiate in a web form, they do not go down to the client like an ActiveX control and instantiate there. They right. are simply objects that get created on the server that then spit out HTML. Right. So I just wanted and, to clarify that. And so some of the common problems of well, you know, how do you add a client side event to like a, a button? Yeah, because the button, the web control button, is generating the HTML, and so you don't really have a chance to put the, uh, you know, like the on-click event. And so you, the trick is is to use the attributes .add um, properties um, or methods of the of the control, 
and then it will generate the script and insert, insert the script for you. Right. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the other things are like, you know, separation of HTML from the code. So now yeah. you know, either you have the inline uh, uh, code, which is really, you know, the script tag with a, a run equal server, um, and then the HTML down below, or there's a code behind, which is a Visual Studio.net type of uh, concept. And, um, and so you're able to separate the code. You know, with back in ASP, you had a combination of server-side script, you know, uh, um, client-side script, and HTML. Right. It was all kind of spaghetti code. And you kind of got used to it, you know. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, some people pull those, you know, some of that client-side uh, stuff out into, you know, DB, DBS files or J, yeah. JScript files. But, yep. but nowadays, it's, it's so nice to be able to, you know, have the, the button click in a code behind page and, and you know, it's all in one spot. Right. Okay. Right. So uh, I, I like the idea. I like your idea of having this list of 10 paradigm shifts for going from ASP to ASP.net. Do you have this posted anywhere by any chance? I or? do. Up on my website, okay. uh, able-consulting.com. Don't mm-hmm. forget the dash. We'll add, a, we'll add a link to that right on the show page, CPA. Yeah, on my so. technology page, I have several presentations, and one of them is, is migrating from ASP to ASP.net. Great. Yeah, because yeah, that's an area I'm interested in, too. And I like your approach of right. kind of enumerating yeah, the, the, the issues that people are going to have to deal with. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of this was just my frustration is learning ASP.net, you know, because I was an ASP programmer for a long time. And then I had to really, sh- you know, shift gears and, and, and to see what the differences were, you know. And so I, I just started writing them down. and, and uh, Yeah, um, great. Well, that's cool. So we have a caller on the line. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm excited about this guy because he's he's been a regular commenter on the blog. That's actually where I met him. Right. Uh, I always want to pronounce his name with a French accent, Grenier. But I think that I'm supposed to say Joe. Isn't, that, you... isn't that like a liqueur? No, Grenier. it's Grand Marnier. Oh, okay. Although you might call it Grand Marnier or something Grand sick Mariner. like that. <laughs> <laughs> but so, uh, Joe, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right. How are you guys? So go ahead, Rory. Call him a dickhead. <laughs> That's one of the jokes on the blog. To call the show was so that you would say that on the air. All right. Okay. Well, we're gonna bleep this. But Joe, you are a freaking dickhead. Oh, a dream come true. Finally, finally. One thing to be called it on a blog, but another thing on .dot net rocks. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing fine. How are you guys? I'm good. You got a question? Yes, I do. Actually, I had a question regarding uh, object spaces. Uh, moving moving into the Whidbey time frame of things. Um, okay. Right now I'm working on a project where object spaces would actually be perfect, but of course I'm not allowed to use products that haven't been released to market, so I'm uh, going to have to wait on that. But um, the question is, as I look at it, I'm thinking I'm going to have to be writing a lot less SQL when object spaces comes along. Now, granted, it's not perfect for every single project you're going to run into, but is, is this really going to kind of help me you know, one of the questions we were banding about this morning was, okay, fine, it's going to generate all the, the nice SQL calls into the database for you with its object relational mapping, but how efficient is it going to be? Am I going to have to go in and tweak all the SQL because it's not really as efficient as it could be? Is the first generation going to be lousy and then, you know, maybe version two or three is going to be right up where it should be? I don't know if any of you guys had a, had a, an opinion on that. CB? Uh, not had a chance to work with that technology, of course, uh, in object spaces. Um, of course, you know, it's, it's as good as the, the developer writes the code. So, um, I don't know. Uh, Rory, and I are based, no, Rory and I are basically 
IMing back and forth saying, I have no freaking idea. <laughs> we haven't done that either Yeah, we've yet. messed with Whidbey, but uh, right. not so much in that area. So, oh, man. I, I mean, I know it's a, you know, an object r- relational management kind of uh, tool, yeah. and it's going to generate database code in the middle tier, but we don't know. Joe, for asking that question, you are a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was one before, but that's okay. Double, yeah. double dickhead. <laughs> I, I actually just called for the free stuff, honestly. They said, you know, ask this question about object spaces yeah. just to get on. Right, yeah, it's just an excuse. Well, Couldn't you have asked something easier? <laughs> because like, what's my favorite color? Well, Joe, because you're such a fan, we're going to give you a .NET Rocks clock with mine and Rory's mugs on it and uh, 12 digits and things that go around and around. So. Yeah. That, that actually works perfectly because our clock back in the area we're working in is broken, and I haven't known huh. what time it is for months. <laughs> <laughs> just All right, been Joe. sitting in the office waiting for closing time. Yeah, right. yeah Definitely. Thanks for calling. Give Jeff your mailing address or email us so that we can mail that to you. And uh, thanks for calling, man. Yeah, later, Joe. It's good to hear from you. You know, I'm actually looking forward to when the ASP.NET would be comes out. That, that's a great tool uh, from what I've seen so far. You know, you have to write. You don't write. You write a lot less code to create. You know, great looking websites. I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. And the master uh, pages. What a concept. You know, they've done a great job in that area. So people are going to be blown away by yep. by Whidbey. Okay. I can't. Whenever I get in front of Whidbey, I just sit there and start writing things with generics. I don't even care what I'm doing. Right. I start making long right. lists of generics, and I laugh about how I don't have to generate my <laughs> my custom collections, my strongly typed collections. Uh, so. I like it where I don't have to create recreate a login page. I just you know mm-hmm. use the login control now. Yeah. And, uh, so just a lot of great improvements. Yeah. I, I like as as Rory said. I think generics are most most exciting for me too. Even as a VB programmer, you know, I don't care about my dot whatever, but but generics are really cool. Well, it's because yeah. we used to have to write pages, literally, of right. code just so that we could have strongly a collection that appeared strongly typed. But behind right. the scenes, it was still... Uh, yep, casting yeah, and all that stuff. Right. Casting back and forth. And uh, you had to maintain that code and you had to lug it around with you. Yep. It was like a Put big in your suitcase, suitcase full exactly. of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Although at the same time, it was fun. So I'm yep. going to miss that because, you well, know, nerds, so they like hitting your head, like So hitting yourself in the head with a hammer is fun when you stop. You know, it feels a good small when you hammer. stop. But, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, Carl, let's see. What else is on our list of things to talk about? Well, uh, you have your paradigm shifts. You have your connection strings. Well, maybe a few tips and tricks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tips okay. and tricks are good. Uh, They're always good. Current technology. So, you know, a lot of folks don't know, but they can store data views in a session. Variable. Well, we can store any object in a session, can't well, we? Most people in all the documentation says that, you know you can data data tables or a data set, but you know a data view, um, you know a view is based off a data table, right. and so you know uh, you store the data view in there. And uh, at first, you think, well, is it making a copy of the data table? Carl, let's CP. Let's back up a little bit because I don't even I don't even know if we've ever talked about data views on .NET Rocks before. So, Ah, so let's explain what they are. Well, sure. You know, you have a data set. The data set contains one to many data tables, and then for each data table, you can have a data view. A data view allows you to sort or filter any of the data in the data table. And so once you get the query, you know, maybe it's sort of one way when you do the query and you populate the data table. And now rather than going back to the database, you can just create a data view and resort and refilter what you've obtained in the data table now. Right. 
Cool. Yeah. And the, so, and the data know, table to even go even a little more fundamental, the data table and the data set are really a database looking collection based cache of data that comes from somewhere. It doesn't care where it comes from that you can use to uh, manipulate that data and bind it uh, without having to worry about directly binding to the database. Exactly. So, so what happens if you, when you store the data view in a session, now you might think it's making a, a copy of the data table, but it's not. It's actually, um, and I, I think Thomas, uh, Tom Zek, I think it is his name, who noticed this correct behavior, it's, it happens that the data view still has a reference to the, the existing data table, and so right. the data table does not go away. Sure. And so it, it persists between the um, uh, between calls if you put it, uh, the data view in, in a session variable. Wow. Which is actually kind of cool. That so, is cool. Yeah. And, of course, the usual warnings apply. Like, depending on where you're keeping session state, you may or may not want to do this, right? True. If exactly. If it, you're keeping, it, yeah, you know. that's, a, that's a good question, Roy. What if you're keeping it on another machine? Does the object reference get passed across the Well, machine it has to get boundary? serialized. And then... Does it serialize yeah. it or does it actually just store, like, the pointer to the reference? No, no. If you no, go to a different machine, you're going to get a, another session, right? So you you have to repopulate that session variable. Well, and, and I'm pretty sure doesn't doesn't it serialize the object when it's storing it on uh, an out of proc or actually on an, on another machine? Is isn't that what's going on? I thought I thought I remember reading that in an article mm-hmm. in one of Dino's articles. We'll have to get to the bottom of that and yeah, provide yeah. a link. Depends but on how you have sessions set up, also whether it's uh, you know in proc or on uh, state machine or in SQL Server. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's on a state machine or, or you know the ASP.NET state object, or if it's in uh, SQL Server, what you're saying is you can't count on that reference to be there uh, all the time. It doesn't maintain it. You have to read it back because it gets serialized. Is that what you're saying, CP? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. But but a lot of people use the improc. Right. Right. So exactly. it's, well, it's, it's one a good of the, tip. Yeah. It's just you got to remember. True. Yeah. I, I think I think uh, CP. This is gets to the heart of um, a, a topic that is very close to my heart for Visual Basic programmers, which is just understanding the difference between reference types, value types, and, and understanding what an object is when you look at it, and especially when you assign it. You know, when I say my reference type, like a data view, uh, you know, one variable equals another variable. What am I really doing? And VB programmers are very much used to value types for everything. Whereas, you know, we're, we're thinking that an exact copy is going to be made of that when I use the equal sign. But with reference types, it's not the case. I mean, you're basically adding another reference to an object that exists somewhere else that you're not actually touching. Exactly. And so, um, and it, may, it really does affect the decisions you make. Like, for example, when you, on a data set or a data table, use a get changes method, that returns a copy. So that's like, of getting a copy of a reference type. So it's more like a value type uh, assignment. But uh, that gets a copy of the table or the data set where the changes are made. But if you just use something like, you know, get errors or the select method on a data table, for example, that returns an array of data row objects, those are just references into the data that's in the data table. So you got to know the difference between those things because it can seriously affect the decisions you make in your code. Yeah. Another one that people tend to forget is when you create an instance like a data row, and it, it, you have an object, but you still have to add it to the rows collection. You know, right. there's a lot of things like that where you create the object, but you got to add it to the collection. Right. Just because you said new row doesn't mean it's in the rows collection. Exactly. I'll yeah. get tips like that. But uh, you know, another uh, tip and trick is uh, in Visual Studio.net. You know, a lot of people want to see what's inside the data table. 
And so, you know, they go down to maybe uh, the, the command window. And, ah. they, and they type in a question mark, and they go ds.tables, and maybe yes, you know, and, and Carl, zero in the rows, zero, and then item zero. Carl, it used to be there in, in, uh, in version one yeah. of the framework. It used, we used to have be able to, to go into the items in the data table in the autos and locals window. Yeah. And you can't do that now in no. Visual Studio so 2003. No, so here's the trick. And so you go down to the command window, and you do a question mark and the data set name dot get XML. Oh, and oh. And that spits up all the XML. Of course. And at a glance, you can see everything. Of course. Why didn't I think of that, Rory? Because you're stupid, Carl. I don't know. Carl, man, you just just made my day, man. And of course, it's a great time saver. You get the nice VS.NET 2003 IntelliSense in the command window, too, which is cool. That makes me so happy. I had had to give a shout out to that just because. Carl, uh, I'll tell you, you know, anytime I get a tip like that, that, you know, I I think, you know, why didn't I think of that? I just am so happy. Thank you very much. That's great. (laughs) And I didn't even have to pay for it. That's the best part. <laughs> well, I got one more for you. Okay. So, you know, a lot of times uh, when I'm working, I used, I used to have Notepad up, and I would paste common things that I wanted to, to, to you know, I copy and paste into Notepad, these common pieces. And then um, I noticed there was a, uh, the, dot, the Visual Studio.net has a clipboard ring tab. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you, if, and then all your copies go into there. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you don't have to use Notepad to paste, you know, common stuff. You just look in the Notepad ring, yep. which is on the uh, toolbar, I believe. Uh, that works great. Doug Haynes says he thinks it holds 24 or 25 of the last copies. The only time I don't like clipboard rings is like when I'm using Outlook or Word or something. Oh, and I man. just want one copy yeah. and that damn thing pops up. It opens yeah, up automatically. That yeah. bugs the heck out of me. I don't know why it's different between there and the other, but I just I don't like that. Pop-up windows in general really piss me off. And you tell it to go away, and it doesn't. It's like that uncle who I comes know. over and unpacks and yeah. sleeps on your couch. He's got the cigar, and yeah. his personality takes up the whole room. And he and goes, he, all right, let me tell you about this trip I took to New Zealand. <laughs> then he puts exactly. the cigar out in the guacamole dip. Yeah, I hate that. Freaking Got jerk. one more for you. So, you know, when you're down in the properties window, and there's a little, and you want to edit something. There's, you know, there's not a lot of room to edit down in there. You know, you have to go clear to the end of the string or something. True. So what you do is you double click on the title bar of the property window, and it opens it up uh, mm-hmm. to be a floating window, and you can drag and you know make it bigger, yep. and then you can edit your heart's content. And if you double click again on the, the title bar, it puts it back into the original spot again. CP day one VBNet masterclass that's in there. It's yeah. been, it is. That's, that's been cool. in there since uh, I started. That's a great tip. Yeah. Double click, it goes. It pops out double click it pops back and that gets rid of uh see this is the way i Docking present that them. to my my students i say we get rid of uh, dll hell and dot net but we have a few new hells <laughs> <laughs> and hell number one is docking hell yeah and yep. that's it you know yep. so the cure for docking hell what's the cure for docking hell well uh, whenever i get back into a position where i can't put it back i always just go up to tool options and do the reset of the toolbar or the, absolutely uh, yep D- uh, Doug is saying double-click the line number for what? Bottom right, and it'll, you can type in the line number that you want to go to. Uh, you type in the line number that you want to go to in the bottom right, like in the immediate window? It comes up with a pop-up, and you can type in the line number that you want to go to. Hmm. Oh, oh, there's a line number dialog box. Oh, cool. Do you, do you have the line numbers turned on Oh yeah. in your code? Yep. Yeah, interesting. I don't have those line numbers turned on. 
We, we have we have Doug in the studio today. Yeah, that's true. Doug Haynes is here. He's sort of <laughs> you know he's one of our uh, regulars. Just hangs yeah. out and listens to the show. So I got one more for you, and this is okay. more of a where you move and drag and drop ta- of the tabs. You know, there's there's different tabs, and sometimes you want maybe a new vertical, uh, so you can have two vert, you know, two views of the same source code with different tabs. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you can drag um, the tabs around, and we're talking about the code tabs now, the, the horizontal ones right above the code windows right. here. You can drag those, and um, so for for example. You open up several files and then click on and drag on one of the tabs, one of the open files, and move it to another position. And uh, mm, so you can move right. those around. You can also drag them onto the onto the page, and a little pop up will pop up, uh, style will pop up. And uh, if I ask if you want to create a new horizontal tag group or a new vertical tag group, yeah, you know, sweet. Click one of those and presto, you have it. You know, one of those split screens. That's cool. I like the stuff in Widby that I've seen in ASP.NET Widby for custom personalization. Um, right out of the box, you can create a website that has this feature in it, and it's like an intranet or internet website with personalization. And the user can just basically drag columns and panes in and out from a, and it's all like built in. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. That's a, that's a really cool feature. And then, of course, don't forget when you do uh, when when you have all those windows open. Don't close each one. You can go up to the windows and do a close all. <laughs> right, that's you know, I, good to know. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the I like the dragging around of the tabs though, especially when I'm working with ASP.NET, because then I can take the code behind and bring it back next to the ASPX file, so I don't have everything you know strewn around all hodgepodge, hodgy widgy, hodgy podgy, like a, the British wiki tacky <laughs> wacky sacky. <laughs> We're going to get some hate mail for that, Kyle. I know. <laughs> you know, the, the Brits, they have these crazy lollipop names for th- streets and things like... <laughs> crazy lollipop w- names? Worky, tacky, wicky, placky. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Okay. Now the now we're, our, our, our switchboard is lighting up like a Christmas tree, and they're all coming from the UK. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, yeah, we do have a caller. Um, we've got Ben on the line. Ben Zamora. Is that right? Yes, it is. All right. I actually have a question about using uh, GUIDs in a data set. Um, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're using a data set um, on the client side, the GUID seems like a, a really obvious fit for using a key, you know, in your key auto increment column. Um, have you guys had any experience with this? And what's your best way of, of using that with a SQL Server database? And what type of a data type would you use in that data column? Good question, Ben. CP? Yeah, I- you know, I, I generally use auto numbers um, and not GUIDs, but, you know, there's two schools of thoughts, whether you, you know, use an identity value uh, or, you know, the, uh, a unique identifier uh, such as a GUID. Um, you know, there's pros and cons to each. I, I guess I lean toward the, um, the auto or the, uh, the identity value. I agree. Are you going to take a big hit on the uh, SQL server if you're using a GUID versus um, an auto number column? Well, you know, it is, it's starting, it's a larger um, size, so there's there's more more disk space being used, and I I don't know how performance-wise. Uh, uh, Carl, do you know? Uh, yeah, I do. I do have some. I don't have any numbers, but I know that GUIDs obviously take up more processing power. Yeah. Uh, whether it's going to break the bank obviously determines is determined by the scalability of your system. But uh, I mean. SQL Server is one of those technologies that's infinitely scalable, you know. You can add more boxes to it and it just performs better and it has more storage. And so I don't ever think that there's 
an issue with you know performance if you just keep throwing hardware at it. But so, but I don't I don't have any numbers like I said, but it definitely does uh, take a hit. Um, I, again, I know people who use GUIDs in certain situations. They they felt they needed to use them. I am a big fan of keeping things as simple as possible. I like uh, I like I'm with Carl Prothman here that I like the uh, identity values. Also, identity values make it easier to use in Visual Studio .NET with the with the ADO Net wizards that expect a primary key. And uh, for example, if you turn on cascading updates with uh, with a data set, if you use that and just fill in with auto number, you know, auto number columns, set the auto increment value of a column to true. And uh, you just let the user go ahead and enter data. When they go and save that data, those values, those primary key values, are replaced with what's in the database. And uh, it doesn't matter what they are when you're just sort of detached and disconnected. So I think that... And actually, where, where my question comes up sort of ties into what you guys had been discussing earlier, where a lot of people run into a problem where they're not aware when they're passing things by reference and by value. Right. If you're creating like a data layer and you go, you know, you you run an up update on a data set. You're doing that by reference, so that's how a lot of those auto increment columns are being updated when you make that run back and forth to yes. your SQL database. Yes. But what if you're using a true message oriented system where you're sending delta packets to your backend, getting delta packets back? How do you reconcile those auto increment numbers? Because you're not running that reference back and forth again. You're at just some some value that's come in and right. come back. How do you get back to to pushing that back into those if right. you're using an auto increment field, right. one, well, one, one way that one way that Bill Vaughn suggests to do that is to instead of um, instead of just simply you know creating them on the client and shoving them back to the server, what you do is when you're going to add some records, you go to the database and you add some blank records either with nulls or with default values, and you return those records and allow the user to edit them in a sense. And so now you're not doing an update. And now you're just doing an update instead of adding columns directly from the client. You know what I mean? So they come back to the client with the primary keys already there. Now you're essentially doing an update. And that also gets around some uh, concurrency issues. Yeah. Right. And, and this is sort of in the move toward you know, smart clients where you've got – where I want to have a very small messages being passed and forth between – between the client and the server, and you end up with a really chatty interface. You know, there's been a lot of .NET developers out there that have really been preaching message-oriented interfaces and trying to stay away from those chatty interfaces. You know, as you're as you're exchanging those those updated values. Let's see what our guest has to say about that. Yeah, you know, typically uh, with identity values, you call a store procedure and then you return as an output parameter uh, the the new identity value, and you can read that from your ADS.NET code. Oh, that's a great tip. Yep. yep. As far as data type goes, let me answer the other part of the question. So a unique identifier is what is SQL Server is the, uh, the, the data type for SQL Server. And in, um, uh, in .NET, you could use the SQL data, DB type of unique identifier. And I, I, on my website, I have a, a data mapping, uh, data type mapping page, which maps okay. all of the... Um, uh, .NET to SQL Server to Access to Oracle to VB, etc. And then, you know, as we move toward the WYSI 2 time frame, I see a lot more of, of being able to pass messages back and forth. And I guess if, if you move away from GUIDs in a data set, you really can't 
think of using data sets to pass around between clients. I know you normally use a specialized class or a struct um, to get better performance, but I could also see passing several data sets around between separate clients and trying to consolidate them sort of for, for like a thinking in the terms of like a collaboration software. Hmm. So I think you sort of would have to move away from data sets for something like that. It's true. I, it's true. Data sets aren't, aren't the solution to every problem. And it almost seems like you should have like a, a something beyond the, the auto increment column in the data set. And maybe there should be a GUID, you know, a, a, a GUID auto generator in the data set. Or a, or a GUID generator. I mean, you can right. certainly and do that yourself with your own code, right? You I could, believe so, but sure. then you run into the problem of updating your data set and right. having having all of your auto-generated code trashed. Cool. Well, uh, Ben, we have a, a gift for you. Do you have an Xbox, Ben? Uh, yes, I do. All right. Do you have Halo for the Xbox? I do now, I hope. Yes, you do. <laughs> all right. We'll send you a copy. So uh, we're going to let you go, and, and uh, KB is going to take your address, and we'll, uh, we'll send you that Xbox. Great. Thank you. Sure. Game. Xbox game. Xbox game. <laughs> Did I say Xbox? No, it's the yeah. game. Halo. Yeah. Okay, well. This uh, is not a legally binding contract. <laughs> <laughs> he said Eric, he was going to send me an Xbox. Our friend uh, from Australia, Eric Zjarby, who, was on the, who we read an email uh, last show, asked the question, has CP ever used remoting with ASP.NET? So data is decoupled from the web server and located remoted in a data server, what are the trade-offs? I have not used remoting. Uh, typically, uh, the ASP, uh, the web server, will talk to a back-end SQL server. Um, if I do have middle-tier business objects, um, they will be in the same process as my web server. Uh, uh, and um, right. so I have not used remoting. I haven't either. Yeah, uh, I don't I, think I do it in that rem- Yeah, situation. I wouldn't. It, remoting is really a... Uh, used for a different purpose, but uh, uh, you know, hey, it's there and you can use it. It might be just his particular situation, though. You never know; they might Could have some be. system that's that that's front end with uh, you may need with it. remoting, and that's the only way they have to plug into it. Uh, Johannes Hansen asks, and he's from Denmark. He asks, in ASP.NET, you can declare an application variable by using public shared var name as string instead of application uh, var name in quotes, in parentheses, but which is better? Application var name in, implies that you're using the application object, right? Which is totally different from declaring a local variable. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think the answer to that one is, you know, use the application object if you need to share those variables across every session. And even then, you should be locking it and unlocking it. Yep. This, this brings exactly up another point, yeah. This brings up another issue, though, and I don't know about anybody else. This might just be a stylistic thing, but because I try to design my applications before I start coding them, I typically have a good idea of what I'm gonna what I'm gonna be dealing with, and I like to wrap my application and session variables in uh, in property wrappers, so that I have static classes. Well, I have I have classes with static members, so that I can just get to those things strongly. That's a good tip. Yeah, yeah. I love doing that. I I, I hate. I hate, hate, hate working on large projects. He that hate, have... hate, hates working on large <laughs> projects. Hey. I, do. I do. It drives me nuts. I hate working on those large projects where you just have uh, string literals scattered throughout referring yes. to application and session variables because it's Spaghetti. so error prone. Yep. It's so messy. And what if you want to change one of the names? What if you have to change one of the names? Yep. You're screwed. Yeah. The other thing I do is I use pseudo namespaces for my application and session variables. Classes as namespaces, basically, or? Well, what I'll do is just to absolutely ensure that there are no naming conflicts whatsoever for my application and session variables, 
I'll have my application variable name be, for example, I don't know, like customer.firstName or something like that if I'm storing that in an application variable. Well, I wouldn't store that in an application variable, but in a session variable, for example. I like to just wrap the hell out of everything. Uh, CP, we have uh, another question here. This is from our friend Mark Canyon uh, from Century Color. He's, he just can't get enough of us. Well, Mark he's, rocks. He's a big yeah. fan. And, and also a customer, by the way. A uh, happy customer. CP, when I do an OleDataAdapter.fill, parentheses, DS, comma, uh, and in quotes, data set name, what does no current record mean? <laughs> the select command has one parameter. Uh, no current record. Current does that record. mean it came back with nothing? That's an error message that's being returned? Yeah, that's an error message that's being returned. The, either the data table wasn't created or something? I, I, that's what I would say. I would say maybe he's got a problem in his connection string or maybe he's got a didn't connect or he didn't – or the database went for a ride or I don't – Yeah, no I, I would make sure you do that in a, in a try-catch and, and uh, use the SQL exception and then take a look at the, um, the properties in there because that has a little bit more information. Yeah, the uh, – um, the stuff about data sets in in service oriented architecture certainly is interesting um i'm but you know what the the way I look at it is you know Microsoft is all about adapting to the needs of the developers and the and the architectures so I'd be very surprised if they didn't you know morph that stuff into into more appropriate uh, architecture and you know as much as they could morph. And I'm not saying anything in disguise here that I know. <laughs> I'm just guessing. No comment. <laughs> yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, Doug has a general VBNet question here. I noticed a problem in VBNet 2003. When I switch to release from debug, my forms lose the link to the FRX file, the form file, so I end up with only the code. I go back to debug, and sometimes it will relink, but not every time. This is mainly in WinForms. I know it's not database related, but has anyone else seen this, or should I just reinstall ARG? <laughs> yeah, I've not seen that. Yeah, I haven't. I generally leave release off until the very last moment. But then again, yep. you release it, you have bugs, you have to fix it, you yep. have to. But you know, in, with ASP.NET web applications, that's the most common thing people forget to do is put it in release mode. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So they, you know, and yep. and so you, you get the the debug file that's created, and um and plus when you're in debug mode, when you hit the first page, only that page gets compiled. Whereas if you have it in production, then all the pages in that directory get compiled on the first hit. Mm-hmm. On the first hit. Hmm. Sweet. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Wow. That's good to know. <laughs> I did not know that. So CP, you want to be like a regular on the show, just sort of hang out on the phone <laughs> in the background anytime you know you have something. <laughs> You're just sure, like Mr. Tip sure. Guy today. I love this. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing that a lot of people get confused with is, you know, back in ASP, you had you didn't have a worker process. You had IS dealing all, working through all the requests. Right. And, and now with ASP.NET, ISS hands it off to a worker process, which has its own identity. Mm-hmm. And in, 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 um, in IIS uh, 5.0 and, and 5.1, it uses the ASP.NET uh, local user account, and of course, in Windows Server 2003, it uses the network services account, and um, and a lot of people get confused with those um, because you know, for example, they're using, uh, they try to hit a database, and and they get this error message saying the ASP.NET user 
account doesn't have access. And they're going, well, what is that? You know, so, right. you know, you, you have to be aware of this worker process and its identity. And, and, uh, well, uh, a CP, Mark Kenyon is actually on the phone now. He's going to clarify our, uh, oh, you know, good. this error he's getting. Mark, hello. Hello. How are you, yes. man? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Hey, Mark. I'm going through, uh, filling up a data set with a couple of tables. And the one table uh, with this parameter doesn't return any records. Is there a better way to handle it than just through uh, catching the OADB exception? You should not get an exception if it's just that there are no records that come back. Uh, you should, you know, then you're just, you'll have a, an empty table. How are you accessing the data then? Are you, is this a type data set or? Uh, no, it's uh, just a plain uh, data set. Um, and are you binding, or are you actually pulling the value out of the the, the row? Well, I'm uh, I'm passing the parameter. It's an integer. Right. I put it into the uh, the select command, and then I run the data adapter. And it's when the data adapter fill command fires that I get the exception. Now, when I run the query itself um, through the database, I get the same message: no current record. Hmm. So, is it something then with my uh, query is wrong? What are you doing in your query? Are you doing joins? Anything special? Uh, let me take Some a queries. look. While Actually, you're taking yeah. while you're taking a look, Mark, I want to mention to the listeners that uh, if they know the uh, secret namespace of the week, to go ahead to www.franklins.net slash call.netrocks and send us a message and let us know what it is right now, and we'll pick from the correct. Uh, we'll pick one lucky listener from the correct who have the correct answers, and we'll give them a copy of Windows uh, Server 2003 Enterprise Edition with 25 client side wow. licenses. Can, can, can I say something? Sure. My, my friend Jim Blizzard, Artie, back on the West Coast, yes. is uh, we've been IMing a little bit here, and he's suggesting that uh, are you trying to use the rows in the table without checking to see if there are any? Is that no? I'm, this is simply getting a. Uh, this is simply calling the query and trying to get the records back. So it's when you do a okay. fill, you get the error. Yeah, it is a join query, though. Interesting. And the same error occurs if you're in Query Manager or a Query Analyzer and, and run the query. Um, actually, it's an Access database. Oh, uh, uh-huh. well, that's mm-hmm. the whole problem that's right the there. Problem. <laughs> Access, you know, is required. It, it is built for exactly one user. You know that, right? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. And it has a different uh, it's, it's, um, syntax sometimes. So are you using ANSI uh, standard uh, SQL or is this a custom SQL or what are you? Uh, I'm because, just doing you know, OADB calls to it. So, so what I, I would do is try to... Move to MST. Sorry, I said something <laughs> caught in my throat there. You can go into Access. Uh, and and do the query, uh, and then go you know and do copy that query, and then put it into the select command uh, of the data adapter, and see if that works. So okay. use what's generated in, in Access rather than trying to write it by hand. Oh no, I am using what's in Access. It's a query that's stored in the Access database. I think what I need to do is spend some more time and just upgrade it to SQL. Yeah. yeah, you know, because it's a lot. Of, there's a lot of problems with the because uh, you're you're probably using the OLEDB.NET data provider along with the uh, the Jet uh, OLEDB provider, correct? Yeah, yeah, and 
you know, that technology is fine, but you really want to move up to SQL Server or MSDN or MSDE um, yeah. and uh, get to a real database. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. With Dino Perot's help, I've been upgrading some of my databases here, but uh, this is one that I just haven't had the time to update yet, so I guess I'll just have to work on that. All right, Mark. Well, thanks for calling. And, uh, All right, we'll, thanks, man. We'll talk to you on the flip side. <laughs> yep. And uh, Rory, we have a winner. Who? The winner is Josh Pollard. Josh. Yay! Congratulations, Josh. You win the goodies. J-Man. And what was the secret namespace? The secret namespace was system.web.mail. So there you go. So so what's he winning exactly again? He is going to win a a copy of Visual... I'm sorry, not Visual Studio. He's going to win a copy of Windows Server 2003 Enterprise Edition with 25 client site site licenses. Just for listening to a freaking show. I know. What's such a deal, man? Wow. You know, Microsoft... We get this stuff from Microsoft, but we should put a premium on it. If, if he gets it right, we should charge him 25 bucks. That's true. <laughs> we got to make a little money on this. Actually, the, another thing I want to say is that Microsoft, with a capital M, isn't what provides this, uh, this the booty for our show. Right. It's actually the regional director program right. at Microsoft. So. In, a middle case M. Yes, it's a middle case M. It's a specific program <laughs> at Microsoft that is yeah. giving us the goodies. Well, Carl, you got any last-minute words of wisdom to impart on our listening audience? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in order to learn .NET, you have to program every day. I don't care if you're doing Hello World or whatever. Go through tutorials, but do it every day. Practice, yeah. And, and practice, practice, makes, practice, practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect, indeed. Yep. Okay. Wait, before we go, Carl. Yeah? Don't bring the music up too much quite yet. I'm going to shout over okay. it, okay? Lars Larson sent us a message that says, Thanks for the show, guys. It is the best thing I have found on the internet ever. So I thought we should get a shout out to him. Lars, you rock, cool man. Say. Thanks, Lars. All right. Well, Carl, right. on behalf of myself, Rory, and the listening public, keep rocking. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.